Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And good evening. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. I am being assisted by Alpho of the Alpho Show at TruthWorks Network. Uh, Tonight, Alpho, thank you so much uh, for being with us this evening. How are you? I'm just wonderful, Janice, and thank you. Uh, How are you this evening? I'm doing well. trying to hold down the fort. There is so much going on. There is so much thought um, provoking current events in and around the in America and around the world that it takes a great deal of um, uh, both energy and foresight to process it all. But indeed, Uh, We will process it. Before we get going tonight, Alpho, uh, I want to thank all of you out there listening tonight at Our Common Ground. And to remind you, you should pick up the phone, you should send an email, you should post on Facebook to all your friends that Our Common Ground is on the air. Tonight we have our guest, Dr. Vijay Prashad, who is the George and Martha Kellner Chair in South Asian History and Professor of International Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He is the author of one book that is absolutely a book that I I, uh, go back to very often, and that is his book, Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting, which was published in 2002. And... um, A more recent book is The Darker Nations, and we'll tell you more about Dr. Prashad as we progress in this um, 
in this program. We're going to be talking with him about American international events, looking at the um, military operation in Pakistan to seize and assassinate Osama bin Laden and the international legal ramifications of that particular military um, operation. Uh, We're also going to be talking about the new positioning uh, in American uh, international affairs with the country of Pakistan and the intersection of Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, and India with Dr. Prashad, and I'm looking forward to that. Before um, we take a look at some of um, some black history, <clears throat> I do want to um, remind you that on Monday night, Power Views, we're going to be uh, visiting with Dr. James Turner, uh, head of the African American Studies Program and founder of that program uh, at Cornell University. Dr. Turner has been a friend of our common ground for many, many years. As a matter of fact, I think um, back in the 80s, he was one of our first guests in the first week of our common ground. But we want to uh, take a moment, uh, pause to to look at what what has happened and what we are um, remembering in black history this week. Uh, One of the things is that uh, today is the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Bus Riders. Uh, In 1967, the first group of Freedom Riders were bombed and uh, burned by segregationists outside of Anniston, Alabama. The group was attacked in Anniston and in Birmingham. That was 50 years ago today. Also, this is an anniversary where we remember the 1985 bombing of the MOVE headquarters in Uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia police, with the apparent blessing of the black mayor, Wilson Good, dropped an incendiary and explosive devices on the home and headquarters of the black move organization. Eleven people, including five children, were killed, and 61 homes were engulfed in the fire. Next Saturday here at Our Common Ground, we will be talking with Ramona and Pam Africa again about this historic, tragic event. Also, um, I don't know how many of you are jazz uh, aficionados. Um, Alpha, are you, are, you're really not into jazz. Nope. Well, not <laughs> I, jazz. Um, but, you know, it's, just, it's nothing I've run from. Um uh, I, I enjoy certain artists, I enjoy certain tunes, but uh, I can't say I am um, uh, hooked to it as I am with, uh, you know, simple R&B and um, really music itself. But not necessarily, absolutely not. But when it comes to jazz, I do have an ear for 
certain artists and certain, you know, pe- uh, pieces. So I can use it. Alpha? Yes. You can either what? I can either take it or leave it. You know, I'm not a big a big jazz fan, but I tell you, we are big jazz folks in this house. Um, I I don't know if I ever mentioned to you, Alpha, that when my father was a law student um, at Howard University, um, he worked in the summers as a Pullman porter, um, and he was also a saxophone player, and I'm I, I I'm really I really favor um, all of the reed instruments, whether it be clarinet or or uh, saxophone or sousa, um, a bassoon. I absolutely love those instruments, but. Um, from time to time, my dad played with the Count Basie band. So, um, yeah, uh, he was um, he was one of those people. He wasn't a regular, but he had a run from um, Miami to New York. And when he was in New York, he often sat in uh, as a substitute or an addition to. Basie, Ellington, Tommy Dorsey. Um, It's a really interesting kind of, he had a very exciting life uh, in New York uh, on that end. And um, later on, he would also have a run from Washington, D.C. to Chicago. And he would sit in on some of the club's in 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 Chicago with various bands, um, uh, so I have an uh, affection for saxophone reed instruments. So I, I just want to note for everyone that in 1985, uh, Joseph Oliver was born. Uh, he was a jazz artist, a cornet player, band leader, and composer. And you may know him as Joseph King Oliver of New Orleans, Louisiana. So those are, uh, there's an an additional note. We want to say happy birthday to Stevie Wonder, who celebrated his 61st birthday this, this, this week. And we also want to make another history note in regard to the Kentucky Derby, Erskine Henderson was an African-American jockey. And on this day in 1885, he won the Kentucky Derby on a horse trained by African-American trainer Alex Perry. Remember that name. 1885, Erskine Henderson was a jockey who brought in the horse at the Kentucky Derby. So you can make, Alpha, you can make the connection between the little jockey people you know the little jockey people? Yeah. The jockey people. Okay, the little monuments that people put on their lawns to indicate that they are down um, with black people in the way that Donald Trump is down with black people. No, well, Donald, it was, Donald had a different take. It was, it was different er, no, no, we can't talk about Donald Trump tonight. 
Uh, (laughs) Erskine Henderson, the African-American jockey who won the Kentucky Derby in 1885, was the form for which those lawn jockeys mimicked. I know you were going to go off about Donald Trump, but... Oh, no, 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 but but, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump, um, I mean, at some point we have to decide, we have to determine where our priorities are, and Donald Trump has been a terrific distraction in looking at the serious issues before uh, people in this country for more than two weeks, and it's time for us to put him to bed. Thank you again for being with us. Uh, Alpha is my co-host. I'm going to try to keep him in check. Uh, we, have, <laughs> we have house music lover and Shaka Zulu, smooth operator, and YJ uh, having a vigorous discussion uh, and greeting each other in our chat room, and you can join in the discussion about our program tonight at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Tonight our guest is Dr. Vijay Prashad. He is the George and Martha Keller Chair in South Asian History and Professor of International Studies at Trinity College. He's the author of 11 books, The Docker Nation, A People's History of the Third World, two of his books, Karma of Brown Folks, and Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting, which is my favorite of all of his books, were chosen by the Village Voice as books of the year. The Darker Nation was chosen as the best nonfiction book by the Asian American Writers Workshop in 2008, and it won the Muz Afar Ahmed Book Award in 2009. His pieces of journalism frequently appear in South African periodicals. However, one of the ways in which um, I have found him most recently is at Counterpunch Magazine at counterpunch.com. He's a well-known commentator on world affairs, writing in many journals, on and off the web. At Counterpunch and the Frontline, one can follow his writings on the United States, on India, on war and economics. Very recently, Dr. Prashad talked with one of our friends and our Common Ground family member, Bakari Kitwana, uh, in an interview about the implications of the recent killing of al-Qaeda's leader, Osama bin Laden, and we will be discussing that as well for him. One of the things that I want to do tonight, Alfo and friends out there, is to talk about the landscape of international statesmanship. Uh, by the Obama administration, and also get his take on uh, the many perspectives of what has happened with the ultra-neocon conservative right in this country and their response 
to the African-American president who sits in the White House, President Barack Obama. And we are so very pleased to have joining with us tonight a new member of the Our Common Ground family, Dr. Vijay Prashad. Dr. Prashad, thank you so much for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. My pleasure, and thanks for welcoming me. Well, I am just very excited to um, be able to have a conversation with you about the landscape of this changing America that moved so far uh, in distance from the change and hope we had expected back when uh, President Barack Obama was elected and to look at where we are now. Uh, my my co-host, Alpho, is with us as well, and he's going to uh, discuss with you um, as much as we can to get a sense of why, what, Libya, right. and what happened to the deterioration, what was the historical significance, what is the historical significance of the deterioration in America's relationship with um Libya, and with uh, President Gaddafi uh, to have him running from drones uh, in this year. Uh, Before we begin, give um, our audience a a summary of how you frame international studies in your work as as a professor and how you came uh, to become an expert in international affairs. Well, good evening, Dr. Prashad. Good evening. Good evening. Well, of course, uh, I shall not presume to be an expert uh, as such. Uh, We are all dabblers on the way to expertise, maybe. But um, my main interest is in the problem of, as it were, inequality. And what happens when there is increasing and, uh, you know, uh, dramatic inequality? Uh, So what happens then is you create a toxic social environment where people are at each other's throats and things like increased warfare, um, things like increased policing, um, things like an increased disregard for other people's social existence, Uh, begins to take place. So that's the broad, as it were, value that I put to understanding uh, the world and international relations. If we uh, don't start with questions of the incredible inequality that uh, manifests itself between continents, between nations, between peoples in a country, uh, we don't understand things like war, uh, you know, policing, uh, the basic brutality uh, that people, you know, in their dealings with each other. You may have heard that this evening the head of the International Monetary Fund, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, was arrested uh, yes. for, you know, an alleged uh, attack on a maid in a hotel. And, you know, whether this actually happened or not, we shall see. But the question is, powerful people who control, you know, uh, institutions, who control the world, feel that they have, you know, a much greater sense of, uh, you know, control over our lives 
the lives of maids, the lives of ordinary workers, uh, than we would feel we have over our own lives. And so that, I think, is the beginning, the value, uh, you know, the first step into understanding international relations. Uh, because if we start simply from the crises that take place in the world, we end up only understanding the crises. But if we start at the root, I think we have a better sense of how to talk about a crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about what that root is. Uh, one of the things that, one of the words, the terms, the concept that 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 you have struck me already with is the whole notion of value. And when I think about that, when when I when I consider that word, it is so um, it is so far fetched from the idea of America and its empire build, building that's fueled by its corporatist government. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's uh, it, you know, let's start at home as it were. Um about 35 years ago when the United States figured out very quickly uh in the Nixon administration and then in the Reagan administration when the government and the elites figured out that American labor was getting too expensive and when they discovered that they had incredible technologies at their disposal you know things like uh, satellites uh, the ability to move goods on containers through ships you know uh, when you had computers that allowed you to communicate across continents so what that meant for uh, firms manufacturing firms for uh, people involved in in finance was that you no longer needed to base your big factories or base your uh, service outfits in the United States. You could move to areas of lower wages and such like. And the United States was reshaped quite dramatically from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s onward to the position today where very large people, millions of people in the United States are actually no longer needed. They have become what I consider disposable people. Uh, they are not needed for big capital, for money. They are not needed because manufacturing need not happen here. They are not needed because finance has no need to employ them. So very large numbers of people have become disposable. They are then placed either in prisons. You know, we have, what, two million some people in prisons and in, on parole. And if not in prison, in very large sections of the country, urban areas mainly, where they are essentially in open-air jails, highly policed by, uh, you know, increased police forces and left to their own wits for survival. So if we talk about what is America, America is no longer the 1950s. It's no longer the 1780s, certainly not even the 1960s. We live in a very different place where the values of the place no longer value its own population. They have become disposable. Uh, what is valued today when we talk about, you know, what is good for America, uh, what is valued today is the power of very large corporations and their ability to maintain their power. Uh, during this tax cycle in April, we discovered again that General Electric pays no taxes into the United States government. In fact, it gets subsidies. So General Electric, where in the 1950s one used to say 
what's good for GE is good for America, well, that's perhaps true today as well, except that what we mean by America today is not what one might have meant 50 years ago. What we mean by America today, when the government talks of America, are big corporations, and certainly not the millions of people who become disposable. And by those millions, I don't just mean people who live in cities. I include large numbers of people who live in rural America, where there was a book last year called Methland, you know, uh, referring to crystal meth. Very large sections of rural America where the economy is fueled by the production of things like crystal meth, you know, methamphetamine. And they are as disposed as people inside our very large cities. So there's a racial component to this, and there is not a racial component to this. But when we talk about what is America, what are values, it is certainly the case that American society has decided to dispose of millions of people, and that's unconscionable. How does how does the reconfiguration of power by corporations then impact our relationships not only with uh, our domestic government but with international governments? Well, it's then you can take this onto the international stage. Um, what has become quite clear in the last, say, three decades in this same period is very large firms uh, that are, you know, uh, integrated vertically. So, you know, firms like Goldman Sachs, which essentially is a financial firm, uh, has is very hierarchical firm, but on the other hand has its operations all across the world. And through uh, the help of international institutions, like the International Monetary Fund, like the World Bank, and then like the World Trade Organization, these private companies like Goldman Sachs have been able to penetrate, enter into countries which previously had protected their financial services, you know, from external uh, interference. So, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say a country like Malaysia didn't allow international financial firms to come in and mess with their domestic currency. But as a consequence of a lot of international pressure, they've had to allow largely American-based financial firms to operate all across the world. But what this has meant is these firms, which have an international spread, are able to have an incredible amount of information about economic activity happening in Malaysia, in Singapore, in, you know, in, in Ghana, in Switzerland. And because they have so much more information inside their various you know, hierarchical operations, much more than ordinary people, so that if I then go into the stock market and want to invest in something, I'm at a great disadvantage compared to firms like Goldman Sachs. So this inequality is not only inequality of income, inequality of, of power, it's also an inequality of information. So these large firms, many of them American, but not all of them, have been able to take an enormous advantage uh, over people's lives and livelihoods uh, by the mere fact that they have been allowed to operate on a global scale without any regulation. And that has had catastrophic impact. I mean, to take the case, again, of financial firms, uh, financial firms play with people's currencies across the planet. So they may invest in, say, the ruble 
in Russia, and 15 days later sell the ruble, and Goldman Sachs will make a huge profit, and the Russian economy will tank. You know, it's the same way they bet against the housing market and made millions of dollars in a flash of an eye, and meanwhile hundreds of people are out of their homes. So what I'm just trying to say is that this is an inequality of, of wealth, it's an inequality of power, it's an inequality of information, and it's not just on a, you know, on a national scale, but it's on an international scale. And that has really made things, ideas like democracy, um, ideas like you know, government itself, uh, they have really lost their meaning. I mean, what does one mean when one says democracy? Uh, it's largely a meaningless word. We have had this major upsurge in the Arab world. Uh, dictators have been overthrown. Uh, people have been trying to reimagine how to construct their countries. But the truth of the matter is, as these new regimes come to power in Egypt, in Tunisia, etc., they are going to find themselves up against the wall uh, that's built very close to their borders. And on that wall it says, you cannot build your own destiny because we control you. And until we break those walls down, uh, the idea of democracy itself is going to be very, very, you know, almost meaningless. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you about the the impact of uh, one the war on drugs, the war on terror, the total disaster and invasion of foreign ways, foreign in the in the in the sense of alien. Um, um, administering of our government over over 20 years from deregulation uh, administrations. What impact has that had in formulating where we are now in our thinking about what this country, what democracy is versus what they say democracy is? Well, I mean, it's firstly interesting that our habit has become to talk about any public policy as a war. I mean, you know, the, the drug problem is a serious public health problem, and it needed to have been considered as a public health problem. Uh, addiction is a very serious social and psychological problem. To declare war on addiction seems to me absurd, because what they are saying is we are declaring war on society. So this habit we have of naming everything a war war on this, war on that, you know, A, it makes our imagination believe that only a war footing can solve problems and that things like negotiation, things like, you know, uh, uh, dealing with uh, public health dilemmas as a public health way and that slow way that public health requires, you know, it, it takes us away from a more measured response to social problems. So that's the first thing I would say. This idea of the war on X is, is, is itself a very bad habit that our society has fallen into, this belief that everything can be reduced to a kind of testosterone-driven uh, public policy. So that's a terrible idea. But really, the idea of the war on drugs was never to deal with addiction. It was never to deal with the real social crisis that had fallen uh, to most people who live uh, you know, at the bottom 35% of society. It was never the intention to take, to lift up people's 
uh, you know, pain and suffering. The war on drugs, in my mind, was an instrument to expand the repressive side, the police side of statecraft in the United States. You know, right when the government decided to cut back on providing social welfare, on providing, you know, social services, it increased the policing side of government. You know, it's very interesting. You'll hear politicians say, we've got to cut the budget, we've got to balance the budget, we've got to cut health care, we have to cut education. But the two things they never want to cut are police and military. The repressive sides, the sides of warfare are always going to be increased by this kind of government. What they would like to cut is anything that improves the social fabric, that improves the way people look at each other. And so, yes, uh, it was silly to call it a war on drugs, but also it was, in a sense, honest. They were never interested in, uh, you know, in things like addiction. They were interested in building up the massive police apparatus that the United States now has. You know, why not spend, I mean, I'll give you an example. If there's a case, say, of, of uh, domestic violence in a neighborhood, uh, in a house, in somebody's instead of having three police cars show up and have these sort of macho guys fully armed come and bang on the door, what if instead there was maybe a police car, but also maybe there were two social workers who came to the house and tried to talk to the people and explain to them what was going on and why this is not appropriate behavior. But, you know, we have gone so far away from thinking about, um, you know, measured approaches to social problems that immediately the police must show up for any kind of disagreement in our society. So in that sense, war on drugs was honest because they never were interested in social problems. They were interested in militarizing our society. And the third thing of overseas wars, I mean, in a sense, it has become true that the United States has entered what we might consider the autumn of its uh, dominance. You know, the International Monetary Fund uh, about uh, two weeks ago released its World Economic Outlook report, and they suggested in the report that by the year 2016, that is only five years from now, the Chinese economy is going to be much larger than the U.S. economy in just five years. And I think... In some ways, what we have to understand is this attempt, uh, particularly during the Bush administration, but now carried forward by President Obama, this attempt to control American decline by using military force uh, has a lot to do with the fact that the only advantage that America currently has, and by America I now mean the government, the only advantage it has, the only leverage it has, over the rest of the world, is its incredibly powerful military. You know, the economy is hollowed out. We have given over our economy to the big corporations who have no patriotic bones in their bodies at all. So the only thing one has is the military. In that sense, using the military force overseas is also logical, but it's deeply immoral. And that, you know, is just in the same way as the using of police domestically is logical but also immoral. And that's why I keep saying these two things are very closely and intimately linked. Well, Dr. What, it, it, go ahead, Alpha. Dr. Bouchard, uh, over the, I would say over the last three decades, wouldn't you say that this has been something that's been systematically uh, 
propagated. This has been something that is, I, I would have to say this has, it appears that this is something that is now coming to fruition that was started decades ago. And in that sense, wouldn't that seem to be, uh, to me it, it seems uh, diabolical because the, the, the globalism that's involved here and the, 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 the foresight, some, someone having to project and to uh, have foreseen this as an outcome with the globalism, with the, you know, the internationalism of, you know, all of the governments in the world, the, the new world order as, as it was, as has been identified as. And isn't this actually what's coming to fruition? And as you stated, the democracies that, that you know, that are, that have been and played so, so big a part of our country and not of, you know, many of the surrounding countries, it's, that is totally, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's a done deal. It's, it's checkmate. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's checkmate because that's the end of, of humanity in a way, but it's very close. I mean, just consider a small example. When a country is coming up to uh, putting its budget together, and, and imagine the country could be the United States. It could very well be any country, you know, pick Malawi. The process has become the same. So the budget has to be written, and the country decides that instead of covering the budget, they're going to have to borrow money. And if they borrow over a certain amount, uh, the international bond market is going to be suspicious of the country and say, you know what, we no longer want to lend to you. So the country then, against the wishes of its own population, is going to have to rewrite the budget and cut things that are very popular inside the country in order to please not its population, which is, you know, I think a definition of democracy, but to please the bond market. And in that sense, uh, the United States this year has actually is experiencing what countries all across the world have suffered through for the last three decades. So, you know, you saw the debate this year about the debt ceiling and whether the United States uh, should lift the debt ceiling or not. And the Republicans say, you know, we cannot lift the debt ceiling because that's going to increase our uh, indebtedness to the rest of the world. And if we increase our indebtedness, uh, the bond markets will be unhappy. So we need to slice various parts of the human uh, components of the budget, you know, Medicare, things like that, in order to uh, make the bond markets happy with us. So what we saw this year in the United States has been something one has seen for, as you say, the last three decades uh, across the global south. And so it's now come back to the United States. So, you know, you know, so now people say, well, who's the beneficiary? If even the United States has to behave like, you know, say, India or Malawi or Bolivia, then who's the beneficiary? Well, the uh, sad truth of it is that the beneficiaries no longer have countries. You know, the beneficiaries live in the first-class airport lounge of, uh, you know, of, of <laughs> countries across the world. Uh, they and live in, in leading hotels. You know, they meet every year at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, they sit on each other's boards. You know, there is a population, which is maybe a percent of the world's population, that has access to and control over vast amounts of international capital, and they therefore manage the bond markets. 
And when we talk about democracy, it's their democracy. It's no longer the democracy of ordinary people who stand in long lines to vote in elections. Well, and you and you summarize a great deal of this, and I recommend to our audience your book, Fat Cats and Running Dogs. Alpha, <laughs> <laughs> um, you you you've hit on a point because I think that this has been a snowball coming down the pike, even since um, the Kennedy years that. We were as a as a country being promulgated a culture where we believe that corporations and business and people of wealth understood knew more than we would ever know, and they were the real stakeholders in this country. And what we have now is um, citizens who simply are not resisting. Well, Janice, when when uh, we speak about that debt ceiling, I do not think that the Republicans are opposed to raising that debt ceiling. What they are simply doing with the debt ceiling is holding it over the heads of, of Democrats who they believe care more about the global health all the, this country's health with the bond markets and its financial health. And what the Republicans are simply doing is saying, we'll do it. It's like them holding a gun up to their own head and saying that, uh, well, we'll pull the trigger, we'll pull the trigger if you don't give us these spending cuts. They've placed spending as such a a dark, they, they've demonized and vilified spending, when in fact what should be demonized and vilified are the, the these uh, international multinational uh, corporations and these uh, these thieves on Wall Street and these bankers and the list goes on from health insurance to all of them. These are the ones that should be demonized, and they do it with the fourth branch of government, which is the media. But well, they do know, it I'm also. A, I'm a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Dr. Prashad. No, I was Alpha just going to say that have... I, I'm a completely uh, non-partisan in this, or maybe whatever partisan, because I believe that in the United States, the two major parties are actually completely in alignment uh, on issues of uh, cutting the budget where uh, human beings are concerned and, you know, uh, you know, bending their knees to big corporations and to the bond markets. Because you'll remember that it was Bill Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council that, uh, you know, worked so intimately with the Gingrich Congress to put forward this ridiculous idea of balancing the budget and so-called fiscal responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, Clinton who harshly uh, slashed the welfare side of the budget and increased the uh, policing side. You know, he passed three bills which I think, you know, are monumental and they should be there in any Clinton museum that's built in the future. The crime exactly. bill of 1994, yep. the Clinton welfare reform of 96, and the repeal of Glass-Steagall. These three are instrumental in taking the United States down a road where it has come increasingly to resemble um, the sort of very, uh, you know, fragile 
democratic place of countries in the global south. Exactly. Two-party system does not exist. It has blended in this country. One plays bad cop, one plays good cop, and it's twiddly d, twiddly dumb. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is uh, the very clear thinking <laughs> Dr. Vijay Prashad. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more with Dr. Prashad about uh, the whole notion of Americans celebrating the execution of Osama bin Laden. This is Our Common Ground. We'll be right back. Ideas only become right when you have power. So power has hired people who have the wrong ideas, the incorrect ideas. But because they have power, they have the right ideas. Every time I think, I think I'm going crazy. It is true that sometimes we must lose our minds in order to come to our senses. You're listening to Our Common Ground with our guest, Dr. Vijay Prashad. You know that the ice cream scoop can make a child smile, and that by slowing us down, the traffic light can keep us going. You know that the lawnmower makes life easier, that the blood bank makes life possible. But did you know all these ideas came from the minds of African Americans? Support the United Negro College Fund, because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Have we looked, at, looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted rape, and I'll repeat it, bigoted rape. If anybody wants to challenge me on that, have that, have that. Common sense, who no country. The Alpha Show, Saturday, Truthworks Network, 
common ground and thank all of you for your wonderful discussions going on in our chat room. Alpha is my co-host and our guest tonight at Our Common Ground, where we speak truth to power, is Dr. Vijay Prashad. He is the George and Martha Keller, Kellner Chair in South Asian History and Professor of International Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, not in Washington, D.C., and we recommend his book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. And also, everybody was kung fu fighting. If you think that you want an empowerment library, those are books that should be in it. Dr. Prashad, once again, thank you so much and welcome uh, to our common ground. Um, one of the things that... I do want to extend to our first uh, segment discussion is this whole idea of stateship. And it is so profound to hear you say that we're running out of steam, that our power as the world power, the most powerful nation in the, in the world, is simmering. And, and going lukewarm. And one of the things that I think as citizens that we have to really process is how do we stop this runaway train that gets its steam just based on the, the, the wealthy of this country? How do we get our jobs back based on some new public policy concept? What should we be saying to the people that we empower to make these decisions, because this is a congressional problem. This is not a president. Presidents come and go, but the Congress promulgates law. You know, I mean, there are several things, um, but the things I'm going to just say are also in this particular uh, world right now not possible the three things I'm going to suggest. And they're not possible because the people that we elect now are people who have only the imagination for yesterday, and they are not able to look forward to tomorrow. So I'm going to suggest three things, uh, but I want to also caution that we don't quite have, I don't think, the uh, political will to carry these things, th these three things forward. The first thing is about China, and I think it's important to remember that between the 1870s and the 1940s, it was the United Kingdom or Britain that was the leading economic and political power in the world, and it was during the Second World War that the United States was able to supplant the United Kingdom or Britain and become the leading country in the world. It's important to also remember that in 1945, the United States had 70% of the world's gold reserves, you know, which is an incredible amount of wealth. Well, you know, between the um, Britain and the United States, there was a managed and therefore peaceful transition. Even though the transition happened during World War II, the war was not between... Britain and the United States. And since the, 1945 or thereabouts, 
the United Kingdom, Britain has been a loyal friend and ally of the United States because they had a managed transition for the center of the world economy and and politics. Well, right now, the uh, as as it were, the most uh, logical heir to the United States in terms of economic power and possibly political power is China. And what I think we need to be thinking about is a managed transition uh, from uh, the United States to China. In fact, Henry Kissinger has a new book out called China, 660 pages, uh, largely where he makes the argument that this managed transition needs to be thought through very carefully um, in the upper echelons of American you know, po- policymakers. They need to think very seriously and come to terms with the fact that we're going to have to uh, uh, deal with this transition. And instead of dealing with this transition militarily, uh, there needs to be an understanding that it should happen peacefully. So that's the first thing I would say, is that we need to recognize that we are in the autumn of our uh, centrality and that China is is just behind us in the rearview mirror. And instead of trying to fight them, uh, we need to figure out how to move forward in a, a humane way where the United States just as with Great Britain, is able to retain a position uh, of importance, if not, uh, you know, uh, as a parallel player with China. So that's the first thing. The second thing that the United States needs to deal with is that the fact that our wages are much higher than wages around the world. You know, uh, for a fraction of wages, um, you know, uh, people elsewhere can manufacture goods. One of the reasons our wages are high is because... Everything of our daily lives has been put into our responsibility. So there is no way for me to survive without paying for health insurance, paying for transportation, paying for life insurance, paying for my car's insurance. I have to pay for college. I have to pay for every possible thing. So because all kinds of costs have been privatized, I need to earn much more than anybody else around the planet. The solution to this isn't to reduce my standard of living, but to take off from my responsibility many, many things that should be paid for socially, you know, by the government. For instance, in Japan, higher education is free. Here, if you want to get a private education, it costs about $200,000 per child for four years. You know, that's an obscene amount of money. So if education was free, then I don't have to earn that high salary. If public transportation was available and decently priced, I don't have to own two cars, I don't have to pay $4 a gallon, etc. So I can then afford to take a massive pay cut if many of the goods that I require are provided socially. So that's the second thing that I would recommend. The first is we need a managed transition with China. The second is we need to think very carefully about how to reduce our wages, but not because I want to reduce the quality of our life, but reduce the wages by handing over many of the things we need uh, to the government. And in order to afford that, we'll need the third thing. And the third thing is uh, big money needs to be severely taxed. You know, one of the great myths of American society is that big money produces jobs. The fact is that big money hoards its money and is very careful to use that money in finance where it gets a good and quick return rather than 
has to tie it into manufacturing for long-term uh, return. In other words, I can invest a million dollars in the stock market, and 15 minutes later I can make $100,000 and withdraw my money. Whereas if I want to make money through building you know, bicycles, I have to rent land, I have to build a factory, and it's going to take me four or five years you know, before I start making a return on my investment. So big money has been very, very conservative in its investments in manufacturing. So that money needs to be taxed. That money needs that tax money needs to be used to provide those social goods, which then enable our general wage rates to go down and make Americans competitive against other people on the planet. So I would say that if we do these three things, we have a chance of rehabilitating uh, our humanity in the country, you know, so that we don't treat millions of people as disposable, but in a way bring them back into the social fabric. But as I said earlier, you know, these three things are right now impossible, and they're impossible uh, pretty much because we don't have the political will to push them through. Well, Dr. Prashad, wouldn't that also... Uh entail the use of the fourth branch of government, which is media, because everything you just spoke of is how they use the media in just the reverse. These, uh, you know, they, they call it socialism. When you start talking about the government doing this, or they have vilified and demonized the government. And, you know, some of these responsibilities, and, and you, you, you put it very well because that's, you're, you're absolutely right. When, you, when it comes to uh, what we have and what we are responsible for, to pay for, they have been able to frame the narrative and use it to their advantage. And I would say misinform us, willfully misinform, you know, everyday people that this is good and this is bad, this is bad, this is, this is what we need to do. That's why I use that one word, checkmate. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the media in this country, I mean, apart from, uh, you know, your show, six or seven places, otherwise, the media is just not serious. I mean, it's it's not a serious institution. No. I was well, it's, amused it's driven by, by their advertisement. I'm just amazed that BP tries to sell me um, uh, offshore drilling every evening between the hours of 6 and 7, as though I'm going to pick up the phone and order offshore drilling. Yes. Because it's that's another way that's, in You're which talking we... about PBS as well. Yes. Yeah, so that's on public yes. broadcasting. We have big, giant oil companies advertising. And the quality of reporting is terrible. I mean, um, I, I, you know, the other day I watched, a, or maybe it was this morning, I watched a segment from Jon Stewart where he uh, pilloried uh, Fox News for attacking Common. Um, and, you know, uh, oh, it, it's a hilarious piece because he demonstrates the utter hypocrisy and lack of serious thought at an institution like Fox News. Uh, you know, it, it's an utterly meaningless and empty uh, form of pretend news. So for absolutely certainly, you know, <laughs> we have to find a way to do an end run around the so-called media, you know, and I think that has been the hardest challenge. The, in a way, ideological fight has been hardest, um, you know, uh, and you're, right, you're quite right that when they frame something, say, as, uh, as socialism uh, and vilify it, it becomes hard to defend 
you know, and, and this idea of choice as well, which they've linked to the opposite of socialism. You know, that if, you, if the government provides it, then you have no choice, which is a bizarre thing because in the world we have today, people have no choice either because they can't afford it. So, you know, we, we only understand uh, consumer choice as choice and not, uh, you know, uh, say the, the choice of starvation, the choice of no health care. I mean, those are also, as it were, social choices. But the media is a, just a, 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 the most difficult rock, you know, what Fanon called the granite. Uh, it's the hardest piece of granite to uh, break against. And some of it, I would say, you know, people are a piece of, of this as well. Uh, we don't yes. always want to be, uh, you know, spending 45 minutes thinking about something seriously. I mean, mm -hmm. one of my favorite films to come out of Hollywood was the, uh, you know, was the movie, uh, you know, with, uh, which is called WALL-E, you know, where... Yes. Mm -hmm. Humanity is now on these giant cruise ships that float around space, and people don't leave their little chairs and watch mm -hmm. TV all day long. You know, in a sense, I mean, we have become that. We have evolved into that almost. And yeah. we I, have to walk I'm away amazed, from that. I'm amazed at the intersection between the deterioration of public education, basic public education, and uh, where we are as a political body in this country, and it is not unintentional. One of the things that amazes me is in my generation, many of my friends are now um, professionally employed, but they're at the age where they, may, they must choose to take Medicare, and they are finding out for the first time, having some, some, some insight, that Medicare really is a program for persons who can afford private health insurance to save health insurance companies from paying out for health care. Right. And that's the bottom line of it. I mean, you've paid all your I mean, life into little that. little things like that. <laughs> that the American people are missing. And in our community, specifically in the black community, we cannot afford the kind of indifference to intellectual inquiry that we have somehow slept to, uh, uh, gone into a coma about why things happen the way that, and that's why when you talk about repressive systems, and we have people in communities all across this country who are, wa are watching young black boys be gunned down in the back by police officers when they're handcuffed, when they're laying on the ground, and nothing different is happening, it is so disturbing. We're going to take your calls, but we're going to go into a segment to talk about with Dr. Prashad um, and ask him to share his insights uh, on the way he sees the assassination of Osama bin Laden. In 1981, Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12333, which disallows the U.S. 
from pursuing targeted assassinations. Likewise, for those of you who have not given it much thought, international law forbids this type of action. And I, for one, am very disturbed that there is no discussion going on about the legality of the Geronimo operation and that people on the on the liberal to progressive side seem to have lost their hearing and are no longer able to be serious when it comes to the question of utilizing armed forces overseas. Here we are again. So, Dr. Prashad, please share with us your thoughts about uh, this recent um, um, military action called Geronimo, which is just so offensive to me, and your thoughts about how the American public has responded uh, to uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden during this in, during this military uh, operation. Well, uh, I, it's, uh, as you say, there's been no um, space to have this conversation. Uh, on the Monday after the announcement of his killing, I had done a segment on NPR, and uh, then I talked to Bakari for News One, and my immediate reaction was uh, on in terms of international law and in terms of the geopolitical outcome for South Asia. So those were the two things that I was most worried about. The first one in terms of international law, the United Nations has uh, produced a report. The first major report was in 1998, where the special rapporteur on extrajudicial killing uh, suggested that extrajudicial killings or killings uh, without any judicial process, whether in peace or in wartime, uh, should be forbidden. And then the UN, when it accepted the report, by accepting the report, uh, they essentially put their view that these kind of killings are illegal by international law, by the standards of international law. Well, it's also true, as you quite rightly pointed out, that in 1981, as a consequence of the Church Committee hearings on CIA behavior uh, in the last 30 years before 1975, the uh, Ronald Reagan signed an executive order that forbade assassinations. Now, in Reagan's executive order, it suggests that in a time of war, uh, things are more complicated. But certainly in peacetime, it is to be forbidden. That executive order was updated by George Bush. Uh, after 9-11, but he didn't actually clarify the question of assassination. He simply extended the ability of the intelligence services to do surveillance. So there's never been a repudiation of Reagan's executive order, nor has the United States clarified its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the um, UN's uh, you know, position towards this kind of uh, activity. And furthermore, Israel has conducted targeted assassinations or extrajudicial killing uh, for the last several decades, and the United States almost each time has criticized Israel for using this technique. For instance, when the Israeli uh, you know, uh, aircraft killed uh, Sheikh Yassin, who was the head of
of Hamas, uh, the United States criticized Israel. Now, interestingly, um, since the Obama administration has come to power, and this is one of those great uh, peculiarities. You see, under the George Bush era, they arrested many of the uh, terror suspects, called them enemy combatants, brought them to Guantanamo or to prisons in Jalalabad or sent them to Egypt or wherever, but they had a tendency to arrest terror suspects to bring them in for interrogation, whether harsh tactics or whatever. Under President Obama, there's been less arresting of terror suspects and more outright killing of them, largely through drone attacks. Uh, there have already been some six, 700 drone attacks in Pakistan or a targeted assassination attempts in Yemen, including uh, just after bin Laden was killed, a few days after the United States attempted to kill Sheikh al-Alaki in Yemen uh, by a drone attack. So it's a bizarre thing that under President Bush, who has a very bad reputation for human rights violations, at any rate, there was an attempt to arrest terror suspects and with no procedure for a judicial review. But under President Obama, there's been this new policy of actually assassinating uh, extrajudicially uh, terror suspects. Now, is Pakistan a, in a state of war with the United States? No. So in that sense, even by President Reagan's standard, uh, this was an illegal action, let alone violation of Pakistani sovereignty, etc. So my first problem with the assassination of bin Laden, if we just take the emotion out of it, you know, I can understand, you know, 9-11, people have pent-up feeling of anger, and this was an emotional re release, etc. But, you know, it is the role of intellectuals and people, you know, who think about international law to try to take the emotion out of these kind of matters. Otherwise, we'll just be sending out, you know, posses to go and kill people around the world. It's a very bad uh, precedent. So the first question is international law. The second issue is the destabilization of South Asia. Right after the assassination of bin Laden, there were calls in India to have targeted assassinations of people currently in Pakistan. Now, fortunately, the Indian government didn't act on that impulse. But if it had, then Pakistan would have declared war against India. And I can guarantee you all American war aims such as they are in Afghanistan, would have gone down the toilet. So in many ways, this was a very uh, poor judgment to have uh, assassinated bin Laden. Now, people have said, well, you know, it could be that he was in a, a position where he threatened the Navy SEALs. Now, I don't want to get into that discussion, but I, I just want to make one point there. It was very interesting that President Obama, in his statement on the night of May 1st, said that after the firefight, Osama bin Laden was killed. If anybody recognizes the grammatical structure there, it's yes. not during yes. the firefight that he was killed. He was killed after the firefight. I mean, this is going to raise eyebrows in many places around the world. And so I'm afraid this may have been a lack of judgment. But maybe it's not just a lack of judgment in this case. It seems to be actually the Obama policy, which is kill the terrorists, don't arrest them, and bring them to prisons where we don't know what to do with them. And that's a very big step backward from the Bush uh, record on human rights. Well, I, I've been, I was uh, very interested, too, 
in the notion that, and Noam Chomsky certainly presented this this week in a piece that he wrote, that if uh, Iraqi militia uh, landed in Crawford, Texas, and dragged George Bush outside and executed him for crimes against its country, we have no response as a result of this military action against um, al-Qaeda and um, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have said that it's an eye for an eye. Uh, In other words, they bombed the World Trade Center so we can take him out. But uh, you're right. I mean, the problem here is the question of setting precedence as well. I mean, the reason, uh, you know, uh, since, say, the early 1800s, uh, we've created a big architecture of international law is to make sure that there is some sober handling of crises and not, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, approach where we open the door for all kinds of actions that we will later criticize as, you know, uh, not permitted, such as, as you mm-hmm. explained, if other special services come into the U.S. or leave the U.S., I'm more worried right now about an Indian attack on Pakistan, because that would be catastrophic. I mean, there you have two nuclear powers, last went to war in 1999. If there is any, it's on a hair trigger as it is, if there's any uh, action across the India-Pakistan border, it would be catastrophic for the region. So, you know, this sets a precedent not only for any action in the United States, but it sets the precedent all over the world. And I can just imagine... Uh, world leaders all over the place talking about, you know, how this opens doors for them to act against uh, powers next door or, you know, not quite next door. In the same way as the, uh, you know, the NATO humanitarian so-called intervention in Libya opened the door for the French to use a live fire armed force in Cote d'Ivoire and therefore settle the Cote d'Ivoire crisis uh, to their advantage. You know, these precedents are very dangerous. Well, one of the things that it does, it it puts us in a quandary in the question of what now is our relationship to Pakistan and to the extent that there is an intersection between Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, where do we stand and 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 what is our uh, authority and our relationship there? Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's abysmal at this point. Uh, you know, even if you say that the Pakistanis are playing a double game, uh, yes. it's still a double game that goes against American interests. I mean, one of the things that I don't think we've fully come to terms with is that the crisis in Afghanistan has been going on since the 1950s vis-a-vis Pakistan. You know, when Pakistan was founded in 1947, one of the last countries to recognize Pakistan was Afghanistan. And there was a simple reason for that. Afghanistan and Pakistan have a border dispute that goes right to the founding of Pakistan. You know, the so-called undefined border between the two countries, where the Pashtun-speaking people straddle both sides of the border. That tension has been further exacerbated because Pakistan fears that if a pro-India government comes to power in Kabul 
it will be sandwiched between two relatively hostile powers. So in my opinion, the solution to some level of stability in Kabul does not go through Kabul, but it goes through Islamabad and Delhi. Until India and Pakistan come to some agreement on the Indo-Pak outstanding issues, there's never going to be stability in Afghanistan. You know, so that, to me, is the core. And the United States has actually not seen that. It sees a security problem you know, in southern Afghanistan and northern Pakistan. It sees it only there. But really, this is a diplomatic failure. And if the diplomatic question is not solved, but if confidence measures are improved, you know, then India and Pakistan might work together to solve the Afghan problem regionally, you know, with Iran and others. But we're not thinking like that. We just want to see this as a military problem, a security problem. Again, it goes back to that habit of thinking. We don't want to think of the drug problem as a problem of public health. We want to see it as simply a criminal problem. If we think like this about problems, we'll always make the problem worse. We'll never come closer to a solution. Well, Dr. Prasad, when you speak of, uh, I agree with you when you're speaking about this this indifference between uh, Pakistan and India. When these um, terrorists struck in India, was it Mumbai? Yes. And they, I mean, didn't this escalate the, the, the tension between India and Pakistan? Didn't this, wasn't this simply another straw in that camel's back? And the fact that Pakistan has been playing this, this double, this double agent game and accepting 20 billion from America while simply making more bombs. And they're but, using that money and they're manufacturing more bombs in this anticipated conflict with India, and and United States needs Pakistan to maintain this this, this existence in Afghanistan, and when once we, you know, we, we, we have this, you know, damned if we do and damned if we don't uh, situation here with, with Pakistan, and wouldn't China step in to side with Pakistan if we stepped in to side with India? Well, that's the thing. There are two things there. One is that after the Mumbai attack in 2008, there was a lot of pressure from India's right wing to attack Pakistan, at least attack some of the camps of the group known as Lashkar-e-Taiba. But the Indian government actually decided not to follow that procedure. And instead, they provided a sort of police operation where you interrogated the surviving uh, terrorists, they traced their, uh, you know, routes and communication networks through their cell phones, etc., and they turned over a dossier on the um, planning of the attack, and therefore fingered very many people in Pakistan, and one man who is going on trial uh, this week in Chicago, uh, who has a very interesting role in this. He may have been a former CIA man, who or very shadowy, some intelligence service, who then went to work for the Lashkar-e-Taiba and was the advance man to prepare for the attack. He's going on trial in Chicago. So the Indian government's uh, procedure was to uh, treat this as a police action, not as a military action. So that was one interesting thing. The second thing that's, I think, important is that 
you see, the United States policy in South Asia is, yeah, you're right, it's, it's almost schizophrenic. On the one side, there's a great distrust of the Pakistani institutions. On the other side, because the United States sees the conflict in Afghanistan as singularly a military conflict, it has put all its eggs into the Pakistani military. And that has been the case since the 1970s, when the United States started to give very large amounts of aid to the Pakistani military and the Secret Service, the ISI, to help build up the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets from 1978, actually, and then intensifies in 79. So what I'm saying is that if you see the conflict in Afghanistan as a military conflict, then your big ally in Pakistan will be the Pakistani military, not the civilian side. And secondly, if you don't see that the principal problem for Afghan stability is competition between India and Pakistan, you will not be trying to put forward some framework for a diplomatic solution. And I think that's where the United States is a little trapped, still sending soldiers to Afghanistan to take care of a conflict that cannot be taken care of militarily, but which requires a diplomatic solution where the players, unfortunately for the United States, are players that it does not trust. And yes, China is one of them. Another is Iran, a crucial player. A third is Russia, also not trusted fully by the United States, and India and Pakistan. And unless these countries, including the uh, Central Asian republics, you know, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, unless they are all brought in for a collective process, there will be no stability in Afghanistan. The irony is, in 1995, the uh, Chinese initiated a process called the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which was to deal with the Taliban regime. That was why the CSO was founded in Shanghai, and it included all these players. Later, India also joins the SCO. And what they were trying to do was to find a regional solution to what they considered a regional threat, which was the Taliban instability. After 9-11 the SCO approached the United States and said, we would like to be involved. And at that time, the U.S. government said, we are doing it alone with the Northern Alliance of Afghanistan. That may have been a big mistake. It might have been useful to have had the SCO as a diplomatic partner to pick up the pieces once the land battle had ended uh, by 2001 end. And so then you have to understand, if you see a conflict only as military, and you don't see the diplomatic potential, you're going to be stuck. Mm. Going to be stuck. Dr. Prashad, can you um, uh, talk a little about um, our NATO uh, alliance and Libya? Um, our and, and the historical significance of the deterioration of our relationship with the president of Libya um, and what that is going to mean, however it turns out. Well, that's a very long story, um, but the, <laughs> it's a long. The short version is that you know when Gaddafi comes to power in 1969, for the first 10 years he genuinely attempts to take care of the well-being of his country for the first 10 years or so. From the early 1980s, 
Gaddafi really pivots away from his earlier heritage. You know, he retains his revolutionary rhetoric and things like that, but he really pivots. And by the last 10, 10 years, that is after 9-11, uh, Gaddafi no longer was the revolutionary leader. At least on two counts, he had become uh, the opposite of what he had been in 1969. And those two are the following. One, uh, Gaddafi opened up Libya to uh, the war on terror, saying we will do anything to help the United States uh, in its battle against uh, Islamic militancy. So much so that in eastern Libya, the, um, the Libyans opened up uh, you know, space for interrogation, the so-called black sites, you know, and Libyan prisoners from Afghanistan were brought there, and many were tortured in eastern Libya, including by people like the former vice president of Egypt, Umar Suleiman. You know, very credible reports of his being, his being involved. So the first thing was the war on terror was welcomed into Libya, and Gaddafi wanted to become a player, as it were. The second thing he did was he hired a prominent uh, man, Mahmoud Jibril, who was in Washington, D.C. this week, also in Paris this week, uh, Mahmoud Jibril, to help privatize and make more efficient the 11,000 state enterprises that had been nationalized by Gaddafi in the first 10 years of his rule. So by these two processes, what Gaddafi was doing was he was welcoming, uh, you know, the two main uh, dynamics that had taken hold of the world after 9-11. One was the anti-terrorism or the war on terror, and the second was privatization, uh, neoliberalism, opening up the country to big firms, including big oil companies. Uh, Jibril was responsible for that as well. So he was losing the trust and faith of his population over the last 10 years. Now, Yes, in uh, February 15th, a rising started across uh, Libya. It was fairly popular, even in, in Tripoli, in Zintan, Misrata, various places, even in the western part of Libya, there was an attempt to overthrow Gaddafi's rule. And again, you have to see that in the context of the loss of, of, uh, of his uh, you know, control and the loss of his, uh, his popularity which had been there in the first 10 to 15 years of his rule. But very quickly, the leadership of that early rebellion was supplanted. And in its place came former Gaddafi people who had broken with him for you know, one reason or the other, and uh, very mysterious characters who had been part of the Libyan opposition. Uh, one of them lived in Virginia for 20 years and, uh, you know, seven miles away from the uh, CIA headquarters. And they show up in Benghazi and take over the leadership of the rebellion. So you have very authentic and correct critiques of Gaddafi coming from ordinary people, from human rights activists, etc. But their vision of a new Libya was quickly turned away. And these other fellows show up uh, by late February 2011. And it is this new leadership that calls for a no-fly zone, calls for arming the rebels, etc. So yeah. they are, in a sense, uh, using the rebellion for their own ends. So we are already a far cry, you know, we are distance away from the Arab Spring of Tahrir Square and places like that. This is a different kind of rebellion. Uh, this has become, in a sense, the Northern Alliance 
uh, of Afghanistan, you know, out to overthrow on behalf of NATO. And I find that to be a mysterious scenario. And then there's a very disturbing process that takes place in the UN Security Council, which I've written a lot about, where uh, Ambassador Susan Rice, uh, you know, played a significant role in opening up the resolution, particularly in 1973, uh, to uh, accommodate the full-fledged attempt by NATO to uh, overthrow Gaddafi and impose its own uh, regime, you know, which is contrary to what many thought they were voting for, which was they thought they were voting for, um, you know, some armed action to protect civilians, not to support the rebellion. But really, if you look carefully at Resolution 1973 and the additions made by Ambassador Rice from the United States, it appears that that resolution was written ambiguously to allow NATO uh, to install its own government in Tripoli. And in that sense, it's, a, again, another instance of a very bad precedent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break, Dr. Prashad. Can you take some calls? We do have uh, some calls on the board. Uh, you're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest tonight is Dr. Vijay uh, Prashada. And when we come back from this break, we'll begin to we'll open up our, our phones. He is a well-known commentator on world affairs, writing in many journals and off the web. You can catch him at one of our favorites, Counter Punch. And we want to remind our Common Ground uh, listeners that we are driving to make sure that you subscribe and support the Black Agenda uh, as well as Rita-supported news. I'm Janice Graham. My co-host tonight is Alpha, and we'll be right back. You are our mothers, you are our sisters, you are our daughters. AIDS is the leading cause of death for black women ages 25 to 34. But there are things you can do to help. Prevention is power. Get educated, get tested, get treated. Help stop AIDS.
This is Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we thank you so much for being with us and for the chatter community at Our Common Ground. Doc Don, we're glad to see you. Uh, with us once again, we had started worrying about you. We we missed you for a couple of um, Saturdays. Tonight, our guest is VJ Prashad, and Alpha is my co-host. And Dr. Prashad has agreed to take your calls, and we're going to go to nine seven two. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for joining us with our guest, VJ Prashad. What's your question or your comment? Hello, Janice. This is nice Sarah calling in, and Alpha and Sarah. Dr. Welcome once again. Thank you so much, Doctor Prashad. Um, same thing to you. Um, good evening to you. Good evening. Hello, okay, Doctor Prashad. I'm going to have to um respectfully agree to disagree with you on several of your key points. One of the points that I have to make with you is in regards to the Mumbai terrorist attack, which was all part of a CIA DEA job, because the individual, Headley, it came out in the news that this guy worked for DEA, and he set it up. So it's it's a more was a CIA inside job that was done, and the same thing goes for the the Raymond James incident that happened with this um, CIA analyst agent, whatever he was, that killed those two Pakistanis and end up, um, from what the news is saying, that he paid some blood money and they hustled and got him out of Pakistan and back to the U.S. for what he was done. We have to cover some key strategic points when it comes to Pakistan and what's going on with the global economy as well. I don't know if you, um, if you mentioned the TAPI pipeline, T-A-P-I, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. This is all what this is all about. They are trying to slow China down. The same goes on with Libya and what's going on with Gaddafi and Gaddafi being bombed and what's going on over there. Eighty percent of Libya's oil reserves is controlled in the Serti um, Basin, which is in the eastern part of Libya. And this is where all of the bombings have been um, concentrated in because they um. The rebels, the so-called rebels, which we, are, we were told were al-Qaeda operatives, which the U.S. is now backing. This is how we got into this. Well, not we. This is how the U.S. and the Western world got into this mess in the first place, because they created al-Qaeda, which is a CIA front operation, to defeat the, Russian, the, the Soviet Union. Then when the Soviet Union got out of there and they so-called, they said they went rogue. Now, these are the same people that they were seeing was hiding out in Libya, but they don't have a problem getting in bed with them to back them to put Gaddafi out of power because they want to control the oil. China has key interest in Libya and the crude oil and China. They are trying to block China from getting on board with the world powers. That's what this is all about. And if we look at our history, we can see the same mess happened back in the 1930s with Great Britain, the Netherlands, and the U.S. when they did the same mess to Japan, when they freeze Japan's assets, blocked them from getting to um supplies, their rubber supplies, and everything else, which is what caused World War II and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So we are seeing... Sarah, let's try to get a response. You're you're throwing a lot out. <laughs> yeah, I know it's response. a big place, but let me pull back some of the food off the table. 
My only thing is that this is all a response to block China's and China's growth because China is right up there and they are controlling the the the, the, um, the revenue between in between Libya and the Tappy Pipeline, and this is all they're trying to slow China's growth down. So if you can touch on that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, I, I mean, I don't think there's a, a a lot that I disagree with in the large con- sense, but I, I do believe that you know everything cannot be reduced to one thing. Um, you know that all these events cannot be reduced to the attempt to block China, or I, I, I don't. I don't actually agree that necessarily the CIA is behind everything. You know, um, they are behind a lot of things, and it is true, as I mentioned, that um, Headley, uh, David Headley, had worked for an intelligence organization. Not yet clear until the trial goes through uh, what the details are of that. You know, we have statements that he was in the DEA, maybe the CIA, but let's wait, let the trial demonstrate for us some sense of, of you know, let's see what is what comes out. The truth may not come out, but something may come out. Also the Raymond Davis case, you know, yes, of course, the CIA has been operating in Pakistan, that's clear. Uh, there's even more to it in the Raymond Davis case than we know. Uh, it may very well be that he was, uh, this is a sting operation, because the Pakistanis want the release of one of their agents, uh, Asma Siddiqui, who has been held in American jail. I think she has been sentenced to 30 years. So there's speculation that there may be those other kinds of things involved. But I, I just, you know, wanted to say that, you know, people around the world are also capable of doing horrible things, silly things, stupid things. So it need not be that the CIA is behind all things. Sometimes the United States government is able to take advantage of other people's follies. And in that sense, I would say that in Libya, there was a genuine upsurge uh, that took place on February 15th. And, you know, people like Fateh Terbil and others uh, were genuine uh, Democrats. And Fateh Terbil is a human rights lawyer, 39 years old, was arrested 15th February in Benghazi. He's not al-Qaeda. He is definitely not, uh, you know, involved with the CIA. He was a lawyer who defended a thousand prisoners killed in Abu Sina jail in the 1990s in Tripoli. Uh, So, you know, uh, there's a genuine uprising in Libya, but it was taken advantage of. And a different set of factors come into play once it was taken advantage of. So broadly put, I agree that one of the, uh, problems for the chessboard, as it were, is that the leading player right now, the most powerful military player, is playing rather rough with the other pieces, you know, China, Iran, etc. And that has the effect of inflaming uh, international relations rather than calming it down. But that doesn't mean that that large chess piece, which is playing rough, is doing everything on the board. Other people are also trying to move their own pieces, but they seem to keep getting jostled. And I don't no, want to no, minimize not... the points you made, but I just want to say that, you know, I would not like to reduce everything to the attempt to block China, although I agree that that is a very, very big factor in, in what has been involved in at least the last few years. No, I would not say it's only to block China. What they are trying to do, these large c- countries, that have 
various ethnic groups, tribal groups like Afghanistan. They know they cannot surmount or, or get through there and conquer them like that. So what they have to do is create divisions among the different tribes. They have succeeded in Iraq where they split it into three different regions between the Kurds, the Sunni, and the Shias. They're working on Afghanistan to do the same thing. They have moved into Libya where they have, where they have tried to do the same thing. This is all a divisionary tactic that these people are doing. They're trying to break these things down into smaller groups. We've seen the same thing done in Sudan with northern and southern Sudan, the Christian versus the Muslim. This is about breaking down large countries into small pieces that you can control, and that is what they are doing. I agree with you. That's, that's true. On the other hand, there is also another dynamic that's involved here, which wants smaller countries or maybe more authentic countries to allow for greater voice. So, yes, it's profitable for you know, large corporations and the big pieces on the chessboard to weaken states around the world so they can take better advantage of them. But at the same time, there's also pressure coming from, say, southern Sudan to have a greater say in their, uh, you know, how they want to organize their world. And initially, they tried to have a greater say in Khartoum. When that was blocked, they went for independence. So all I would say is, I agree with you, that there is this pressure from above, pressure to make small, uh, big states into small states so they're easier to control. But at the same time, uh, for completely different reasons, there is also pressure from below asking for uh, more authentic government structures and Sometimes these things collide, and, and tragically, they collide to the advantage of big corporations in some cases, rather than to the advantage of people who simply want a more representative government. No, big corporations are using people as strategic pawns to move them around, to say, okay, these people, they want this freedom, or they want these things in order for them to push their own agenda. This See, is that, all that's, this what, that's why I just want to breathe some oxygen into that idea. I agree with you in the broad principle, but I don't believe that in every case people are used as pawns. Sometimes the pawns move, and their movements tragically will line up with, the, uh, with the, where the kings are going. Because you take the case of Libya. You know, when the rebellion breaks out in Benghazi, they, it did not break out because, you know, six CIA agents came there and told them to rebel. Or it didn't break out. Because people said, if we have a rebellion, it's going to help the United States. Their rebellion has been going on since the 1980s in eastern Libya against the Tripoli regime. That's because the Tripoli regime has grossly uh, neglected eastern Libya and has used very, very brutal tactics to put down prior attempts to create greater democracy inside Libya. I mean, Gaddafi is a past master at... Uh, centralizing power in the name of decentralization. You know, he claims to have a decentralized democracy, but it's a highly repressive police state. And just no, what I'm getting here is a whole bunch of talking points that I'm getting from you and what it sounds like it's being fed to me and to the rest of us here. Because Gaddafi might have points to whom? And yes, he's, um, he, might, he might, all people that, that's involved in politics, you're not going to like them 100%. They all will have issues. Well, what I'm seeing here being played out here is that they have the best crude right now in the in the world. It's it's easy to process and it's 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 the best on the market now. We're seeing France now with the destabilization of the European economy and what's going on over there. 
They want to get their hands onto Libya, and they wanted to get this man out of here, put some puppet in place where they can come in there and they can control the wealth of this country. It's all about controlling the wealth of these regions. You see, That's I agree with you, but at the same time, I don't want to underestimate and disrespect the Libyan people either. In other words, Gaddafi is not equal to the people of Libya. What you say about France's interests and the oil company's interests is all true. At the same time, there was an authentic attempt to supplant, to overthrow Gaddafi. Because Gaddafi is not the great defender of people either. You know, he was a brutal dictator, especially after the 1980s, and came to resemble people like Mubarak as each day went by. It's the tragedy of the people of Libya that the rebellion they are trying to create is going to deliver Libya to the oil companies. That is their tragedy. But I would never say that the people of Libya who are rebelling, not just in the East, not the so-called rebel leaders, but ordinary people who wanted to overthrow Gaddafi, I would never say that they are either simply pawns or that they are being, they're being used. Because they also have authentic, real demands against Gaddafi, which he was never able to hear. So I agree. The oil you, companies, France... In, you're, you're coming into a... No, when I said you, I'm just saying the, the Western world in particular... They're coming in there. They just had on the news they killed between 6 or 11 imams that were um, bombed yesterday that were there to seek peace for what's going on. You cannot indiscriminately come in and bomb people into submission. All you're going to do is you're going to raise resentment. You're going to raise more people to come in and want to kill you, want to destroy you. What I'm trying to suggest to you is I'm in agreement with you. I'm against the NATO intervention. I'm against the oil companies and foreign governments intervening in Libya entirely. But at the same time, I'm against the Gaddafi regime. You see, but I'm, but I'm, that's your personal thing, but because you are against it, I'm against what this president is doing. This extrajudicial rendition that he is doing, going around making himself judge, jury, and executioner, shooting and, and executing people, American citizens, and saying, okay, because I don't like what you're saying, for instance, myself, he might say, okay, I'm not in agreement with what she is saying. I might want to snatch her up off the streets on your way to work and maybe put you in a prison somewhere and torch you and beat you up, and then a year or so later let me out on the street somewhere. This is what, in essence, is what this country is doing. Well, they're doing, you know, they're doing this to people all over the place of liberty. Sarah, I don't think you have as much disagreement as 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 your statements um uh, portray, but one of the things it is very much as though France and Great Britain would come into this country and make judgments about the kind of repressive, mm-hmm. oppressive uh, uh, actions against American citizens that American citizens do have some very valid. Uh, complaints and protest against this government. Correct. So I, I think that what Dr. Prashad is trying to do is trying to ask you to balance those interests. Um, and I, 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 have, I, I have some problems with Gaddafi in the way in which he has treated uh, those of uh, the original peoples yeah, of Gaddafi you. Yes. Uh, Sarah, thank you for your call, but we've got to move on to okay, another call. Okay, thank you, call, too, Janet. Call. 
and 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 thank you so much for for being a, a loyal listener and someone who is really watching the detail of the events as they uh, unfold. And uh, we we hope that you'll join us each Saturday night. Thank you so much, um, Sarah. And we're going to go to 954. You're on the air. I respect you. Good evening there, Queen. Arade uh, from... CEO. And Sabah uh, and to Dr. Farshad. I uh, want to briefly talk about my experience in Pakistan and Karachi back in 07. But I also want to share points of observation that he made concerning um, budgets and the type of civility that the police department in the United States should have. I'm going to try and get this as concise as I can. Please first of all, Ronde. Yeah. First of all, President Obama is being set up for an assassination attempt in this country. And I say this because how they desecrated who they claimed they assassinated or killed Osama bin Laden. And then they turn around and bring out all this pornography stuff. If the man is dead, then they decimate his character by bringing all this foolishness in. The white well, power structure in America sets up. Yeah. The, the white power structure in this country sets themselves up under nepotism by having lifetime appointments in the Supreme Court system where they have that going for them in that respect. But the last caller said about China is very true because they are becoming a power. When I was in Karachi in 07, Shaheen Airport, as soon as you walked out of that airport, what did you see? You see McDonald's right outside the airport, a two-story McDonald's corporation, Mickey D's, right? And if this Dr. Freshat, I remember the movie uh, Bandit Queen, David Fulan, and I remember... The latest one I saw was Ganjani. So, and I'm sure he's aware of those two movies. Very powerful. One was definitely a, a, a democ, um, uh, what do you call it, a documentary. And the other one was based on Bollywood, which had a lot of realities of what profit and capitalism makes among the world. The sad part with all of this, um, Janice, is that um, when you look at countries and civilizations and you see that their power structure is going to the elite, it you know, it's like when India had enough of Gandhi, just like we had enough of a point of Dr. Martin Luther King where we're getting tired of getting going upside our heads. You know, if you're going to have a man out there in the street, you better have somebody up on some roof with some rifles ready to deal with the situation if you're going to expect people to do nonviolent protests because that is the height of insanity and stupidity. So Mm -hmm. with this Dr. Prashad, I would like to ask him, China is becoming a pertinent political power on this earth. I witnessed that in Ethiopia and Addis Ababa. I've seen it in Pakistan. I've definitely seen it in Bangkok for the three years that I lived there. And in Saudi Arabia, I, you know, and, and I, I, I've lived and worked in these countries. So, you know, it ain't like I'm talking from some textbook crap. I've been there and experienced and plus my own experience in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. So I understand what the realities are. So I just hope he is coming out 
no matter how they try to sugarcoat this, in 1985, when Wilson Good got elected mayor, the first black mayor of Philadelphia, which is where my father's from, and they bombed Osage Avenue. And that same time that year was the 25th anniversary of Motown. I remember that distinctly. I ain't never forgot that. So, you know, just let's talk well, the truth and, and push the faith and the reality that needs to be dealt with because America is... Is, is going downhill. There's no p more power. You better hope if you do go somewhere, you can get paid in euros or pounds because this country okay. is on its way out. Well, thank you, Rondé, for your, your comments, and we appreciate your listenership. Uh, Dr. Prashad, uh, this just opened. When we begin to look at America in 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 the scope in which your area of expertise um, reaches, it, it's unbelievable how the parallels of both history and current events kind of like align themselves. But before, I know that you're going to have to go, and we really do appreciate so much having this much time with you, but I, I there are two things that you have written about that I have been just that really intrigued me. It intrigued me out of my own vacuous understanding um, of uh, the situation. And in one of your articles, you commented on Mother Teresa's uh, links with Charles Keating and Michelle Duvalier, the wife of Baby Doc Duvalier. And I have always been intrigued by the iconic Western charity, uh, which is explained through the character of Mother Teresa. Um, <clears throat> and it seems as though much of that has waned in this country, that you don't, I mean, if you look at what we have not done in Haiti, if you look at that in relationship to what we have not done in uh, response to Katrina, if you look at that in what we have not done as a country in terms of our values about human rights, um, it, 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 it has its relationships. But, but talk, talk just generally about what I call the illusion of Western charity around the world. Well, uh, I have a piece recently in Frontline on Greg Mortensen and the Three Cups of Tea uh, book and project. So Western charity is, uh, you know, is a it's a very troubled uh, sort of uh, endeavor for several reasons. One is it makes the claim that people in their own home countries have not the capacity to feel compassion, that unless you come from outside, they are themselves not going to want to uh, do things to help their own people. And that is a great, uh, you know, that's sort of liberal racism. And the other mm -hmm. thing that's interesting linked to that is in the stories that they then tell about themselves, so that Greg Mortensen will say that he built the school, and he deliberately underplays the work of the Aga Khan Foundation, which has been building schools for girls in that area for years. Just in the same way that we talk about Mother Teresa and the poor in Calcutta, and we forget 
that there are scores of other organizations uh, that are already at work there. So somehow there is this need to have a savior come from Europe or the United States. You know, it's the same way that a movie about Stephen Biko made by Richard Attenborough uh, will kill off Stephen Biko before the intermission. And the second half of the movie is about the white lawyer that tried to fight for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. against the apartheid state. Mm-hmm. So uh, this charity industry is about a sort of racist liberalism. And at the same time, it's filled with corruption because, you know, uh, it means that rather than actually produce goods for people around the world, what you're doing is you're paying 1% of the tax you should be paying uh, to aggrandize yourself, to make foundations in your name, and to make yourself, whether a religious or secular saint, in the eyes of the planet. And so I'm not in favor of this charity industry. I would prefer to live in a world where people pay tax and democratically elected governments produce services. Well, I think that you certainly have given us a lot of material in which to rethink, reassess, and revisit um, all of the things that we hear in the media, that we read in the media, and that we have been told as children. Uh, And it is part of a culturation that we have to somehow um, distance ourselves from um, mainstream information, that we have to be better pursuers and better consumers of information that is in our interests. Dr. Prashad, thank you so very much. It's been wonderful to be able to have this discussion with you. And um, I am, we still haven't made decisions around here, but my granddaughter uh, is considering uh, Trinity uh, for September. It's still on her list. And the decision her her dad has told her, a decision has to be made by Tuesday. And I suspect it's going to be Columbia, but <laughs> we're yes. like guessing. So thank you very much, and I look forward to our association. And for all of you, uh, the spelling of the name, as I've posted it in our chat room, is P-R-A-S-H-A-D. You can go to the Our Common Ground Community Center and get at at our Ning site and get all of the information about how you can continue uh, to read and know Dr. Vijay Prashad. And, of course, we will have him back. Thank you so much, Dr. Okay. Prashad. Good have night. a very Thank good you. I appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Bye. And thanks to you for being with us. Uh, here tonight at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. We'll be right back here with Alpho next Saturday night at 10 p.m. with Pam and Ramona Africa, uh, the MOVE sisters, to talk about the 50th anniversary of the bombing of the MOVE headquarters. Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time.
Well, good evening. This is Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be listening for you. Wishing you peace and power in the new week.